My name is Liz Noss, and I'm your host for everything culture, arts, and entertainment. This is House Lights, your one-stop shop for everything you need to hear about this week. All right, this is House Lights week three. I'm so excited to start again. Um, I am going to be updating you on Twitter T, music and movies, and of course, just a little story from my life and entertainment. So, I went to the Liz McAlpine concert last week which was so fun. It was at the L Club in Detroit, which is probably the smallest venue that you have ever seen. But the intimacy was definitely like needed for a Lizzie concert. It was definitely something that like felt like intimate within the crowd. I mean, she's an artist that like I feel made my soundtrack of my life. So to have like the audience and the performer on the same level was definitely needed for a concert like this. Also, her opener, Carol Hotties, was fantastic. She's the next Phoebe Bridgers. She's the next sad girl musician in training. She's only been playing for one year. She's only been writing her own music and playing for one year. And she definitely needs way more lessons than she already has. Um, I feel like I'm going to have a moment where I'm like, oh, I saw her before she was really big. Just like I had that back in the day when I saw Casey Musgraves open for Katy Perry on her Prism tour. She was in her Follow Your Arrow era. I met her mom for some reason, but I can say that I saw Casey Musgraves before she was in her Golden Hour era. Lizzie was great. She played new songs, she plays classics. She was one of my favorite artists of all time. It was honestly the first concert that like meant a lot to me um, because that person meant a lot to me. So. I do want to tell a little story I went along with the concert. Basically, my boyfriend got thrown up on in the middle of the concert. There was this guy that we met, we were talking, he was obviously a little tipsy, but, um, you know, he was super nice to us, just very talkative, and, you know, you could tell he was getting um, a little more tipsy throughout the concert, and all of a sudden... He throws up on my boyfriend. My boyfriend had to throw away his socks because he threw down his legs. Literally disgusting. But my boyfriend's such a trooper. He just went to the bathroom. And then the guy actually came into the bathroom, apologized, and gave him $30 for his troubles. So that was very nice. We, are, we were able to buy gas station snacks on the way home due to the throw up man. So I guess there's always a silver lining to every story. All right, let's get into some Twitter tea. Um, the first thing that I want to talk about is Britney Spears fat shaming. Alright, so Britney Spears obviously has her social media back since the free Britney era, but she, I guess, decided to use it for violence this week instead of making me feel like maybe Britney doesn't belong on social media anymore. Britney, in the new deleted post, kind of explained that she wanted to surround herself with fat people so that she always felt small. She went on to say that if she were dancing, like, uh, had her background dancers dancing years ago with Christina Aguilera's dancers, basically calling them bigger in the past, she would have felt extremely skinny, and she had wished that she had danced with nannies instead of Britney's own skinny dancers. Everyone kind of obviously called her out for fat phobia, so she took down the post instead, posted an apology, saying that she never wanted to insult Christina's body, and it was just Britney projecting her own insecurities on others. However, I felt like it was missing a little something because there were no apologies for the dancers that she basically called fat. So I'm not sure what that did for anyone. She also pretty much insulted her own dancers, saying that she didn't want to dance with them. Um, but it, it just feels like Britney is playing the victim once again by just saying like, oh, I'm so anxious. I have so much insecurity 
which I understand that she went through a lot of hardship. And honestly, I feel like she does this in trauma response, but that doesn't allow you to be fat phobic on the internet. I do want to point out that this is not the first out-of-pocket thing for Britney to post. She posts on the regular fully nude pictures with a, emojis covering her junk like it's OnlyFans. And she also just posts very weird videos of her dancing constantly, which are always jarring because it's just her like spinning and throwing her head around like it's not real choreography. So I'm not sure what the goal is there. But And she also posts throwbacks, which maybe makes me feel like she might be stuck in the past of her prime. She may be stunted by her trauma, so it seems like this may be just a release for her, but it's hard to tell if it's truly something like cathartic or emotional for her when every caption has like a thousand emojis in it and just videos of her whipping her hair around. Like, I will say forever and now, free Britney, but not if she's going to be fatphobic. Absolutely not. That is awful. Anyways, moving on. Let's talk about Gigi Hadid and Leo DiCaprio. First of all, Leo is 47, Gigi is 27. However, this is definitely celebratory because Gigi is past his usual age limit, which is usually to date girls who are 25 or under. And so she's, so you know, he's she's 27, he's doing charity work. Of course, I'm kidding. She's definitely doing the charity work here. But Leo has been asking friends about her apparently for months after his re- recent breakup with uh, Camila Monroe. Funny enough, the breakup was right uh, after she turned 25. So what did I say? Um, But apparently Gigi doesn't really want to have a relationship. They're just having fun. She just wants it to be very casual. They're just going out together. Like the 20 year age difference, I really don't care about. But Gigi is like a goddess. And she formally dated my longtime crush Zane Malik. So I'm a little jealous of her. And obviously I think that like She's better than dating Leo DiCaprio. She should not stoop to this playboy who's 20 years older than her. Like, if it was, like, Titanic Leo DiCaprio, I would understand. But I cannot see, like, 47-year-old Leo being, like, Gigi level. And, I'm like, I'm not into that. Anyways, um, another, my last Twitter tea for today is an update on Trisha Paytas. So she did not birth the queen. I will repeat, she did not reincarnate the queen But what she did do is birth a children's toy. That's right. She named her child Malibu Barbie. I wrote an article on it, so you should go and read that. But anyways, she named her child (laughs) Malibu Barbie, (laughs) which is so funny. But the more I thought about the name, I was, like, actually obsessed with it. Like, it's really cute. It's giving Paris Hilton. It's giving, like, early 2000s Hollywood, L.A. Like, I think that it's going to serve. Um, it, it, I mean, it proves that Trisha Paytas has Trisha Paytas's personality hasn't changed for like years. Like she's still giving the same energy of like the pink and the blonde, and it's it's amazing. It's perfect. This child, this child, may be bullied for years to come, but she'll know that her mom is that woman. And while Trisha has done like controversial things in the past, I don't think this is one of them. This is definitely not a you know, cancelable offense. Maybe exploiting your pregnancy and your child for content could be, but you know what? We're just going to ignore that and focus on the fact that she named her kid something so iconic, Malibu Barbie. All right, let's get into music, movies, and shows. So the first thing I want to talk about is going to be a little bit, um, 
serious and different for music movies and shows. And I, I really wasn't going to talk about this, but I, I had to because I realized I was ranting about it to my boyfriend last night. So obviously I feel very passionate about this. So the Blonde premiere was recently. Um, Anna de Armas is playing Marilyn Monroe in the new biopic on Monroe's life. And I just have a couple of thoughts on it. So like I grew up with with my grandma telling me in like my preteen, my preteen years when I was like super insecure with my body and I just wasn't built like some of the skinnier girls um, that with that with being a medium to larger size girl that back in her day back in my grandmother's day the most beloved you know and like model icon was Marilyn Monroe and not these skinny models that we see today like she was a woman who wore a 14 16 and had curves and had like a very like realistic body type and when I first saw the casting for this for Anna de Armas to play her, who is obviously not a medium-sized woman, feels like erasure of this story for me. I mean, you look at the at the difference between their body types, and it is, it's startling. And I think that she has the face for it, absolutely, and I think that she's a great actress. But I feel like the story that a lot of girls have been told is that Marilyn Monroe was their body type, and that this woman who is so iconic in American pop culture is kind of being erased. Um, it feels it feels wrong, uh, and it's been on my mind since the casting, so I definitely wanted to talk about it. Like, we're putting modern body culture of Anna Darmas into this movie about a woman who, like, broke all barriers back in the day to make all women feel sexy. And she was really the first body-positive woman to be seen in the mainstream. So it's I, I had to bring it up. I also learned some new things about the movie while I was doing um, research on it. There, it, I would like to put in a trigger warning here. Uh, there is a scene between Kennedy and her, apparently, in the movie that is a pretty graphic rape scene. She starts passed out. She's disoriented and being taken into a room for JFK by the Secret Service. Um, JFK kind of commands her to do sexual favors on him for about over a minute, as well as jumping on top of her and having her be woken up sort of battered and bruised with the implication of rape. However, there's no evidence of this in her real life that JFK did this, and uh, many people are coming out saying that this is that it was completely fabricated, um, which, and then apparently there's a lot more scenes in the movie that are completely fabricated, making it a biopic that is mostly fake, which seems so pointless to me, especially when dealing with such graphic and sensitive topics as assault. Um, it, it got an NC, the movie got an NC-17 rating back in August, and apparently Armis was confused as to why it did, even though there is a more than a minute long scene of this and that, that could be triggering to audiences. Now, whether it happened in Marilyn's life or not, which many people are saying that it it didn't, and this biopic is sort of making it for shock factor, which is disgusting. Um, the movie should be rated N-17. And honestly, there's no reason to show a woman being assaulted for over a minute. There is no trigger warning or artistic choice as to why that should continue to be part of the movie, especially if it is fake. Ridiculous. 
Do I think that if it happened, it should be shown? Yes, but there should not be a minute-long scene. That is extremely, extremely insensitive to other women who have went through that. So I am not excited for Blonde. I don't think it's going to get great reviews, and I'm confused as to why the production staff doesn't understand why this movie is rated the way it is. Anyways, I'm going to move on um, before I get too passionate about it again. Um, But a little bit lighter topic, Don't Worry Darling, comes out this weekend. You know the drama. We're going to fill the seats. The Harry Stands will be out to play. It will be a grand old time. I'm going to the NGC Cinema with my roommate opening night on Friday. A little meet and greet moment, perhaps, um, for the Harry Stands. But yes, I'm so excited to see this movie. Um, Maybe a little less excited because critics are hating it. But you know what? We're going to show up and show out anyways. One more thing for music and movies. Do Revenge uh, was dropped on Netflix recently. I watched it this weekend. It was fantastic. It was the best Netflix movie that I've seen in a, in a minute. Um, Maya Hawk and Cami Mendez are the two main characters. They're both absolute stars. They had amazing on-screen chemistry. Every, every single actor in this, I believe, did a great job, you know, kind of referring to Gen Z and how easy it is to kind of ruin someone. And they were great actors of this, including um, Ethan from Euphoria's and I thought he was a great standout other than the two main actresses. Maya Hawk is honestly one of my favorite people on the scene right now, so it was great to see her. And I'm, I was excited to see Cami Mendez outside of Riverdale as well, because I feel like Riverdale is so um, beneath her talents. So, it was nice to see her in more of a role that could show off her acting chops. Um, There's an amazing twist at the end, and you know I love a We Hate Men propaganda. So, it was great. I definitely recommend Do Revenge on Netflix. Um, But, so we're going to start Culture Stories this week. Uh, Sitting down with Alex Walters, the writer on the divestment story. Um, He sat down with Pat O'Keefe, sat down with the Sunrise MSU group to talk about MSU's um, involvement with fossil fuels. So, first of all, tell me about sitting down with Pat O'Keefe. How do you cut, like, a board of trustee? How do you come by this? What's the vibe? Well, I mean, I was a little bit surprised because Pat O'Keefe was, I mean, he was very open to sitting down. And then even once I sat down with him and started the interview, he's just very open to answering questions. Um, And he talked to me a lot about sort of his rise to board of trustees. He, you know, in his words, he's not a politician. He's never been in politics, but this is something that he wanted to do. Um, and he truly is. I think a lot of politicians say that they're not politicians and that they like, they just answer questions honestly and they're there for the people. Um, and I think whether you agree with him or not, I mean, just based on the interview I had with him, you know that he says exactly what he believes. And I guess that's comforting for voters. Yeah. So how does it feel? Like, obviously, you know, he said that, you know, he says how he feels. How does it feel to have someone tell you their goal is to make money, period, when you're talking about fossil fuels? Well, I mean, I guess I wasn't that surprised. Uh, I mean, he doesn't come from education. He doesn't come from research. He's a he's a businessman, and he's been a successful one. He actually specialized, I think, in saving sort of failing businesses, is what his firm did. Um, and so he sees himself on the board of trustees as a businessman. He's purely a fiduciary, and he puts that in terms, not of like making money for the university for any abstract purpose, but he puts it in very literal terms of scholarships. And he talked a lot uh, before we got into the divestment stuff to me about um, you know, when he went here, when he went to Michigan State, he thinks it was a lot easier for him just because the price of tuition compared to what he was making at his minimum wage job, um, he was able to afford to pay himself through school. And I don't think he sees that opportunity 
for kids today. And so his goal was, you know, purely financial in like um, making as much money as possible. But uh, and it's in the story that he says, you know, he's doing that because he wants to provide the most scholarships for the most number of people. Um, but, you know, why I thought this was sort of interesting, something worth covering is because now that goal of like providing the most scholarships was sort of at odds with an environmental goal. And I think that's kind of a tricky gray area for a lot of people who I think that it's a common intersection of people that want to provide scholarships and also want to not have the world burn. And so um, it was an interesting intersection. I think that's why we covered it. Yeah. Do you think for Sunrise, that moral responsibility of him, you know, wanting to get scholarships for students, do you think that absolves him of his moral responsibility? Or do you think they think that absolves him of his moral responsibility um, to the environment and sustainability for MSU? Um, no. I think based on my conversations with them, they're very firm that they um, they believe that not only investing in fossil fuels is a poor moral choice, and, and they're very clear that, you know, it's their money, it's tuition, and it's contributions from alumni, and they want to invest it in a way that they feel morally comfortable. Um, but they also believe that it's just financially not a good um, investment because they think that fossil fuels aren't something that's going to stick around, and Pat O'Keefe just disagrees with that. Yeah. I think one of the craziest quotes that I read, he more or less said, if you're a true patriot, shut off the heat in your dorm. Give me the take on the vibe of the conversation at that point. Like, what led to more of, like, a passionate comment like this? Um, well, I mean, I don't think that kind of comment is out of the ordinary for Pat O'Keefe. I think he talks in, like, very simple terms, and he says exactly what he believes. But, um, you know, at that point in the conversation, he was talking for a long time about um, his theory of sort of energy dependence. And he said, I think, three or four times, um, in the history of man, there has been no um, replacement of an energy source. It's always been additive. And so his thing is basically that for the Sunrise people, and it's the same as when he said that they should switch to STEM majors, is that he doesn't think that you can just switch away from fossil fuels and switch to renewables. He thinks that you need enough renewables where fossil fuels can sort of be phased out. And so I think he puts it in that very, um, I guess, strong analogy that's kind of biting. But um, it's part of his whole theory about energy dependence. Um, he has a strong belief that like fossil fuels aren't going away anytime soon. Yeah. O'Keefe said that idealism was something to maybe not be so encouraged on the board um, when making decisions. Why do you think he said that? And do you think that practicalism is working against this board and its relationship with students? Well, I mean, I, I think it's the same thing as you know uh, any of the other questions. It's he's he thinks he's a fiduciary. Yeah. He's a businessman. He thinks that it's strictly about um, like making the most money to provide the most scholarships. And so for him, like, and he says, you know, he doesn't fault their activism. He just doesn't think it has a purpose in the investments of the endowment of the University of Michigan State's like um, the contributions from alumni. Um, and I think that there's other trustees like Trustee Vassar who, at that same April meeting after he said that they should switch to STEM majors and uh, be part of the solution, in his words. Trusty Vassar is encouraging, and she says, you know, I love the work that you guys are doing, I love how passionate you are, but materially, what they're doing for the investments isn't really any different. Um, and so I think O'Keefe, I don't know if, you know, in like his actual actions and his votes, is that different from the other members of the board? He's just a lot more clear about um, connecting what he says in his comments to what he actually does when he's voting. I really only have one more question for you. Yeah. Um, as the environmental justice reporter, why is it important to you to cover these topics? I think that the environmental issues are fun, not fun to cover, but um, important to cover because they're not as like clear cut. I mean, they're really, I had a, a teacher in high school who taught um, an environmental science class and he used to say with every issue basically that um, 
there's never any good solution when you look at environmental issues. It's always about like multiple imperfect solutions and figuring out the one that you want the most and what's going to sort of like in like a, I guess, utilitarian view, like what's going to do the most good for the most number of people. And so covering these issues like divestment where like, you know, there's not a good, easy solution on either side of the argument. Like, um, you know, like we talked about, you sort of have to compromise the moral environmental view to preserve the scholarships for students, or you might end up hurting the endowment um, and paying what could be um, you know, crazy fees in litigation if they breach these contracts to like pull out of the fossil fuel investments. And so I like covering these issues because there's not a clear, uh, there's not a clear solution. It's not black and white. It's, and so I think it's important for us to write about these more so than other issues, just because we want to inform the electorate with what these gray areas look like so they can make their own choices. So that's why I've enjoyed it. And that's why I think yeah. it's important that we keep covering them. Well, now you're my first guest on the podcast. Well, thank you for so having me do you on. I feel honored. I feel honored. This is wow, very exciting. I've never been on a podcast before. That's so. exciting. Well, thank you so much for coming. You were amazing. I uh, can't wait to see more stories from you. Thank you. And read the divestment story. The divestment story if yes, you're listening. please do. It's amazing. All right. Another culture story that came out this week that I really enjoyed was Hannah Warhol's um, investigation into the, pop, the popular viral TikTok scandal that surrounded MSU recently that a girl found actual feces in her Grand River Subway sandwich, which is, uh, I saw that TikTok and I was absolutely appalled. I couldn't even imagine getting that sandwich. That is ridiculous. Apparently the ELPD seemingly has closed the case because there was no malicious intent found when they looked at the security cameras. But the fact that they closed the case, even though she fully ate a sandwich that had that in it is just like I feel like something more should be going on. A Subway spokesperson said that the like color was actually a cookie which Kelsey Coyne the the girl uh, who ate the sandwich is still suspicious of that due to like the texture she said that she would have believed more of like an old marinara sauce or something but the fact that it was a cookie makes her want to continue to look out for things. So she is continuing to try to get a third-party lawyer um, to talk about settlement with Subway because because she hasn't been able to eat. She's been nauseous because of this, you know, alleged substance in her sandwich. Um, and she's going to get it. She also is getting it tested rather than sort of taking Subway's word for it that it was a cookie. But that was a crazy story this week, so definitely check that out as well as Alex's story on the divestment piece. Um, finally, my favorite yik yak of the day. We love the tradition. Um, my favorite yik yak of the day is don't have money to buy milk, so I'm snorting coffee grounds. Please don't do that. That cannot be safe. Anyways, that's it for House Lights this week. I'm so excited um, to continue this podcast. Uh, third week, can you believe it? So thank you so much for listening, and I'll come back next week with more Twitter tea drama, music, movies, shows, anything you need, your one-stop shop for entertainment. Have a great rest of your day. I'm Liz Noss.